Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is ASH update number two, the Aspen study, Xanabrutinib, Bribrutinib, and Relapse Refractory CLL. I'm going to walk you through my thoughts on this. I've heard people praise this study, the talk of the town, Xanabrutinib defeats Ibrutinib, yay, 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 yay. I'm going to have a slightly different perspective. Why? Because I'm starting out reading the study as both an oncologist, someone who sees CLL patients and knows a great deal about CLL, but also somebody's primary appointments in epi and biostats. And epi and biostats part are what really makes this trial, makes this trial important. So we're going to analyze that aspect of it. The other thing I'd say is off the bat, we do need more head-to-head studies in, in oncology. When novel drugs come out on the market, like pharmacyclic cybrutinib, and next-in-class drugs come, like Beijing's xanabrutinib, it behooves us to run randomized control trials that test which is a better strategy, to start with ibrutinib, switch the people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to xanabrutinib, or vice versa. But those studies need to be carefully designed. The primary endpoint has to make sense. The study power has to make sense. It has to be fair and balanced. And the moment the sponsor of the second company starts to play on those strings, they're likely to bias it in their direction. And I worry that's what happened here. So we're going to talk about that here. This is Brown and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine. Let's take a look. The consort figure, the first figure, 769 people, relapse refractory CLL, randomized one-to-one randomization. I like one-to-one. You know, I don't like one-to-two. I don't like one-to-three. It's not an enticement. That's what Christine Janai and I found in a paper we published. Um, <clears throat> and it just reduces study power for no good reason. No good reason, really. Um, and this is a head-to-head study of xanabrutinib versus ibrutinib. And that's rare in oncology. We have few head-to-head studies. In a paper by Ja Lu and I, we looked at all head-to-head studies of monoclonal antibodies. And we found very, very few. A tiny paucity of all the studies that could have been conducted have been conducted. So we got a head-to-head study. That's good. One-to-one randomization, that's good. And that's where the good kind of starts to run out. These are patients with CLL. Some are 17P wild type, some are 17P mutant. And to be eligible for the study, you have to have relapsed disease, or disease refractory to at least one previous line of therapy. Patients who had received prior treatment with a BTK inhibitor or a history of bleeding disorder, active infection, blah, 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 ineligible. So who is the person in 2022, 2018 to 20? 21, the years this study enrolled, who had a 17P mutant patient deprive them of BTK inhibitor frontline, gave them some rituxan alkylator to put them on this study. I think that's, that's a negligent choice. And it speaks volumes about where they're conducting these trials. Resource-poor settings that unable to afford xanabrutinib, no matter the results of the study, unable to afford ibrutinib before the study was even launched. Next key design feature, the trial drugs were administered in open-label fashion owing to variations in re- regimen, schedule, and suggested dose modifications. Uh, no, that shouldn't have been the case. You should have done placebo-controlled. You should have made them look the same uh, or done double-dummy. You can do double-dummy placebo design, uh, another way to get around that. It's important that the investigators don't know what they're giving people. They know that Beijing, Mama Beijing, is coming to them with all this cash to do the study, they're going to feel indebted to Mama Beijing. And that is very bad if the endpoint is a biosusceptible endpoint, which we're going to come to. And it might lead them to make choices that favor the sponsor's product. Now, it would be one thing if the endpoint is something like global health-related quality of life over time, which is what the endpoint probably should have been, superiority of that, or overall survival, a bias-resistant endpoint. But if the endpoint is something like measured disease, this is deeply problematic. And I think they should be faulted for this. This is no good. They have the cash. Come on, come on. You got tons of cash. You got billions of dollars. You can easily do double, double, double dummy design. 
when you look at table one, it's interesting. <laughs> there are people who've had between one and 12 lines of therapy. 60% uh, just had one line. 8% had three or more lines. Um, the types of therapy they got before, they got three or more lines of therapy. The years the study ran and they never saw a BTK inhibitor, where the hell are they running this trial? What planet is they running this trial? And 83% got an alkylator, but excluding bendamustine. So what are they getting? Cyclophosphamide and an anti-CD20 antibody, chlorinavacil? What are they getting? Where is this trial being run? What are these people actually getting? Why don't they actually name the drug? Why do they say alkylator, not benda? Chemoimmunotherapy, purine analog. Why don't they just name the name of the drugs? This to me is a very weird table. And it does suggest that there are people with 17P deletion who are not getting the standard of care at the time the study was run, which makes you worry about post-protocol care, makes you worry about you know, desire to please sponsor, makes you worry about all sorts of things. Statistical analysis. The paper says we estimated a sample size of 600 people would provide the trial with greater than 90% power to detect the non-inferiority of xanabrutin and tibrutin with regard to overall response. Non-inferiority? What the? What kind of bullshit is this? Are you out of your mind? You think I want to use xanabrutin because it's non-inferior? No. Non-inferiority design is a design that should only be used if the novel product is significantly cheaper, significantly less toxic, and significantly less uh, cumbersome than the parent product. They're both pills. They both have comparable toxicity. They're going to argue they have less AFib, but what about other toxicities that are salient, like the vid? We'll talk about the vid. Um, what about cost? You're, you don't save me a dime on cost. So I would argue that non-inferiority, to run this study as non-inferiority, is fundamentally unethical. Let me back up a second. What is the ethics of trials? A trial, in order to be ethical, has to be capable of answering a question that is relevant for the clinician and patient. A really important question. If you're not answering an important question, your trial is by definition unethical. So if you're asking if xanabrutinib is non-inferior for response rate, a measure of tumor shrinkage, that is not an intrinsic measure of people's how they feel or function or survive, and that margin is permissive, which this margin is permissive, and that's your primary question, then I would say your study is pretty stupid. It's not a question that people really care about. Who would want to take a pill worse than ibrutinib that costs the same, has roughly the same side effect profile? Why would you even do that? Now, of course, they're going to show that they also have superiority, and they're going to try to argue superiority of PFS. But this is the primary endpoint. And you really only get one bite at the apple. What do I mean by that? When we run studies in oncology, the primary endpoint analysis is so critical. The study was designed and conducted for that analysis, presumably has enough power for that analysis. That's the analysis you really can hang your hat on. Subsequent analyses would be credible if they were equally presented and equally highlighted, but that's not the case. If the analyses go in the favor of companies, they'll highlight them, but if they go in the other direction, you'll never hear about it again. So as long as you live in that ecosystem, you can't really trust secondary analyses. They're selectively reported. 600 people to look for non-inferiority response rate. Seems like a lot. We'll come back to that. First, let's remind ourselves response rate, of course, is not intrinsically meaningful to patients. These are their own criteria that they're using for this study. International Working Group of CLL, decrease in lymph node size of 50%, hepatomegaly decrease 50%. You know, these are arbitrary, arbitrary values. So xanabrutinib is going to be non-inferior by arbitrary values over ibrutinib. That's the primary endpoint of our study. And we're going to be able to get billions of dollars as a result of that finding. It's pretty terrible. Why are we even running this study? Why isn't somebody saying like, look, you've got to really demonstrate significant superiority. And since you claim that you have less atrial fibrillation and cardiac toxicity, the primary endpoint should be superiority of health-related quality of life. We'll follow that over time. And if we have superiority, we can argue that our drug has better health-related quality of life. 
we also need a component to exclude a decrement in survival. So we'll also need to build in a non-inferiority margin for survival to show that we're not worse than ibrutinib. And having met those two criteria, then we can argue that there's a role for xanabrutinib. But without that, I think it's lacking. And this primary endpoint, I think, is actually piss poor. 600 patients feels like a lot, and it is for one reason. The original statistical analysis plan says you only need 400 patients. It's right on the center of the screen there. 400 patients to, 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 to retain 80% of the efficacy of ibrutinib over ofatumumab, which, by the way, itself, flawed analysis. Um, but... 400. How did we go from 400 to 600? And the answer is the final statistical analysis plan says 600. And if you look on clinicaltrials.gov during the course of this study, they modified, they modified the treatment protocol to increase the sample size from 400 to 600. Why? Now that they don't explain. And that's the rub of this study. You see, how can I trust anything other than the primary endpoint when you're playing games with the sample size? You're increasing the sample size when you start to see what you want to see. But would you have increased the sample size if you didn't start to see what you wanted to see? If you started to see what you didn't want to see, would you crank up the sample size? I don't think so. Your decision to increase sample size is unexplained. And it's also contingent on your reading the trial data. So by inserting yourself in this process, you are perverting everything about this study. I no longer have any faith in any downstream endpoint because it's contingent on your desire to increase this study and not the million other studies that are being run by pharmaceutical companies where sponsors could choose to increase or not increase sample size. And that choice is not random. That choice is contingent on knowledge. And so that is the rub of the study. That's really problematic. And why is it not in the manuscript? Why is it not mentioned by anybody? They're cranking up the sample size and they don't explain why. And by doing so, it feels as if they're tampering with the other endpoints. Initial draft of the manuscript written by the first and 22nd authors with assistance from the medical writer who was an employee of the sponsor. Oh, wow. Thank God we got that assistance, you know. This is pretty disgusting to me. Universities need to stop this behavior. I mean, you have a crisis of academic professionalism on your hands. You have a, you have a pla practically a plagiarism crisis. You would not allow an economics professor a English professor to get some company to write their manuscripts for them. You cannot promote people over manuscripts they do not write. We are living in a world very close to this, where an investigator can go to a trial meeting, the company can propose the design, the, uh, the research team can collect all the patients. The investigator might not even collect a single patient himself or herself. Somebody else may draft the manuscript, write the manuscript, and they'll just co-sign it, and they get all the credit for that. That is crazy to me. That's a violation of everything sacrosanct in the academics. This is terrible. Don't let other people do your work for you. You can't have medical writers. It is wrong. And in a forthcoming paper by Eva Buck, we're going to show some other things about medical writers that are hitherto unseen. So here's the PFS, the PFS that required that 600-person-plus sample size. And, of course, it looks like it favors Xanabrutinib, but it's open label. It's an endpoint that's not intrinsically meaningful to patients. And if things hadn't been trending the right way, would they have increased the sample size? I don't know. I don't know. So how credible is this? In the universe of credibility, this is quite low. It's piss poor credibility. I, I don't put much stock in it at all. Uh, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, does Xanabrutinib have a better PFS than Ibrutinib? I'd say, you know, to be honest, I don't know. And uh, if you were to replicate this a thousand times, I suspect it won't be this way um, in different settings, in different locales, in people who had, you know, adequate treatment for 17P mutation in the frontline setting. Uh, I don't think it would be this way. 
So this to me is a problematic endpoint. This is the endpoint everyone hails. Uh, I don't think they fully understand the implications of allowing somebody the chance to look at data and make decisions about sample size contingent on that data. And those decisions are biased in their own corporate interest. They don't understand that that is the greatest bias in the, on earth. Okay? And if you're going to do that, there's no point in even running trials. We'll just give you whatever bullshit claims you want. And, and to some degree, those exist. We call that real-world data. Okay? Let's call it real-world data. Overall survival, more important endpoint. Indistinguishable statistically. But, you know, honestly, I, I don't know what it means. It's in a backdrop of therapy. Looks nothing like my practice. The 17P deletion patients have already had their time wasted. They're getting alkylators, not Benda, and we can't name what alkylators, maybe even three lines of them for quite some time now. They're not getting a BTK inhibitor, even though it's 2018, 2019. Uh, and then after this trial is over, I don't know, they're not going to get venetoclax. They're maybe, what are they going to get, prayer? I, I don't know. Where is this trial running? What kind of care are they getting? And so even a, a spurious PFS benefit uh, could keep somebody on drug longer. Uh, and, and you could even have an OS benefit even in the absence of any real OS difference between the two molecules, xanabrutin and ibrutinib. Uh, you have to think through that point, but it is a valid point. Um, you know, what does this mean? Nothing. Side effect profile. They're going to keep coming to atrial fibrillation the way a drunk looks for the lost keys under the lamppost because we know ibrutinib has atrial fibrillation. That's a problem with that molecule. But there might be problem, problems with the molecule xanabrutinib that they don't talk about equally. And I see it right there on the table in the center. COVID-related pneumonia doubled. COVID-19 doubled. Uh, I'm going to say doubled. Why not? They get to say whatever they want. I'll say whatever I want too. It's close to doubled. Okay, closer to doubled. I don't know if you know this, but COVID-19, it's, it's not going to go away. It's not going to magically disappear, okay? And as long as it's not going to magically disappear, this safety signal might be very salient. I don't know if you are aware, but the New York Times is talking about the triple-demic. The triple-demic, also known as normal life. Normal life, normal life, normal life. It's all these viruses that are out there. But the problem with life is that there are viruses. And many people mostly do well with that. But patients taking xanabrutinib might not do well as patients taking ibrutinib. They may do way worse. So whatever benefit you're getting in atrial fibrillation, you're losing in infection. And you have to also remember atrial fibrillation or flutter. This is treated as if it is in and of itself a patient-centered outcome, but is it? Atrial fibrillation is a problem in a few ways. One, it leads to anticoagulation. People don't like that. Two, it can cause strokes. Three, it can have a general reduction in health related quality of life. The solution to balance the infection risk and the AFib flutter risk is to collect health related quality of life and show, is xanabrutinib associated with an improvement in health-related quality of life. That's a legitimate primary endpoint of the study. And no decrement in overall survival. That's a legitimate study to show xanabrutinib is preferable. This study is not a legitimate study, showing a non-inferior response rate in the relapse refractory setting when 17p deletion patients are be being treated poorly is not a reasonable justification for xanabrutinib over ibrutinib. The investigators should be smart enough to know that, why they continue to run a study that is not good. I don't know. I don't understand that. Overall survival, the median OS was not reached in either treatment group. Well, that's a pretty obvious thing to say. It's going to take a long time, and it's not quite useful because merely reaching it or not reaching it tells you nothing about the ability to adjudicate an overall survival signal, a common fallacy that people make in this business where they think that until the median is reached, we don't know if it improves survival or not. Uh, we knew in Jupiter 2.2 years that uh, resuvastatin increased OS with 90 plus percent survival in both arms of the study. So, and we knew with bortezomib and myeloma long before the median was reached that improved survival. So 
you need to learn a little bit before you throw these medical writer E's into this. So what's my take? You know, it's a total wash. I mean, I think I have no real data to know. Is it better to give people xanabrutinib and then ibrutinib for the people idiosyncratically intolerant or vice versa? I really just don't know. I think it'll depend a lot on the cost and the cost in individual healthcare systems. And so I think that <clears throat> people should just pay for whatever's cheapest. However, I worry that xanabrutinib will use this as a justification to crank up the price of their product. And I think that's much more likely to be the case. And I think many people think this proves that xanabrutinib is better. Those people don't know how to read studies. We don't teach it. We don't teach anybody these things. People don't understand that if you're cranking up your sample size based on what you're seeing, you are inserting a huge bias into your study. And it's making everything downstream of that unreliable, deeply unreliable. If you replicated this study a thousand times, I suspect you will not get that PFS benefit in but a fraction of cases. It's due to idiosyncratic PFS events that happen to trend one direction. You happen to add sample size and happen to go your way. It's very likely due to the play of chance. They're playing into the play of chance. They're putting money in a place where the odds are in their favor. That's all they're doing, okay? And I don't see any credible evidence that it really is a PFS improvement drug. It's not the primary point of the study. <clears throat> I don't see that evidence. There's too much manipulation of the sample size. They shouldn't be allowed to manipulate it. They shouldn't be allowed to run this study. Where is the FDA? Why didn't the FDA say non-inferior response rate? That's not going to get you a marketing authorization. Are you out of your goddamn mind? That's the most trivial thing on planet Earth. Patients don't care about 80% of the treatment efficacy of ibrutinib over ofatumumab for response rate. They will care about living longer, living better. Have you forgotten? What is the goal of oncology? Live longer, live better. Less drug, all things being equal. Less side effect, all things being equal. Live longer, live better. You have forgotten all of these things. Meanwhile, we've moved to frontline BTK inhibitor in this country. The study has nothing to do with that. We need a replication study in the frontline powered for overall survival, longitudinal health-related quality of life. This study has nothing to do with the frontline. Nothing to do with the frontline. It only really is valid for a place that takes 17P deletion patients and gives them chlorambucil rituxin or whatever the hell they're doing in this study. I don't know. They don't even tell me. But some garbage therapy doesn't apply to people who are putting those patients on ibrutinib today. Is xanabrutinib better for somebody who's at risk of AFib? I don't know. Do they have better health-related quality of life? I don't know. That's a separate study. You could have run that study. And what about COVID-19? It's not going away. It's going to come back. And I bet crappy studies like this can even lead to massive harm of CLL patients when people draw the wrong inference that one is better than the other. <clears throat> it's problematic. It really is problematic. I mean, I wrote a paper recently called The Tragedy of Oncology. It's on my Substack. It kind of unpacks how the field is just so far off. And in my mind, this paper is really emblematic of why the field is so far off, so far from running studies that are actually going to be informative, um, just chasing marketing authorization and buzz, and just no real counterweight in the system to actually explicate the problems with the study. Your primary endpoint was non-inferior response rate in the second-line setting for people who didn't get a BTK inhibitor and you included 17P patients and you enrolled between 2018 and 2021? What the hell are you doing? And then when things started to go in a way you liked, you cranked up the sample size, you don't explain why in the paper? It doesn't even say that in the paper. I only have to find when I read all the protocols and supplements that that happened. You don't even, and nobody wants, nobody has the guts to explain it. The editor doesn't even think, oh, you know, maybe this is something worth the reader should actually know about. And then you don't measure health-related quality of life. You use atrial fibrillation as a surrogate for that, but it's a weak surrogate. And then you got way more COVID in your hands. COVID, which apparently, which according to most of the people in oncology is the worst thing on planet Earth. You got double COVID. 
And in fact, probably the COVID is actually, I will say for this population, probably way worse than the atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is manageable. The COVID is probably not less manageable, to be honest with you. It might even be way worse, especially if you have low gamma, low gamma globulins, etc. And nobody's asking the key question, why do we even let companies run their own studies? This is ridiculous. I don't write the MCAT I take. I don't write the STEP exams and take the STEP exams. This is the greatest bias in oncology. This paper literally proves nothing. Its value is no more than the flip of a coin. It is total garbage. It is being overread and overinterpreted just because we have so few of these studies. And everyone here is going to take a lot of credit that they are New England Journal authors. Uh, they don't even understand that they're complicit in a modern system that is deeply harmful to cancer patients. It is not a system that is about the best interest of cancer patients. It's a system that uses cancer patients' name to reallocate huge, huge tranches of capital. It's a capital reallocation system. This is a paper designed to reallocate capital from one company to another company. It has almost no credible inference for the patients who have the disease or for the doctors who treat it. Very few people will understand this. This is a huge problem. I think a thousand years from now, they'll look back on us and they'll think, those people were primitive and cruel and stupid, and I can't believe they didn't see it. So until next time, next video is going to be Triangle. Then we're going to do Gem Caesar. We're going to do Ascent. Oh, that's going to be good. That's going to be good. You don't want to miss that. All right. If you like these videos, you need to do like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Email plenary session podcast with your suggestions. Until next time.